Sometimes you meet a photographer that sees the world completely differently than you do. In fact, completely differently than almost anybody does. And when they take their images and make them match the way they see the world, it's something special and something we can all learn from. Today, we take a look at the place where Jules Verne would perform experiments on animal kind. This episode of Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to another episode of Behind the Shot, the podcast where I try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots to try and better understand the choices that they make from conception to completion and any weird issues or stories that happen in between. I'm your host, Steve Brazel, and uh, today's guest is one I'm really excited to have on. My, my guest today, to say that he is, is probably one of the most influential photographers on the planet, is probably an understatement. It's New Zealand-based photographer, Trey Ratcliffe. Trey, how are you, man? Great. Uh, thank you very much for saying that. By the way, I would not consider myself a great photographer. I, uh, I would say I'm a very passionate photographer, and I really care about it, and I'm kind of probably a bit insane about it. Um, but every now and then, a picture works out, you know? Well, and, and I would actually say, and part of the reason I think you are a great photographer, and I mean that you know, sincerely, is because you have the ability in, in your photography. For example, I had not actually known much about Burning Man until I saw your photos. And you in those photos, the way you capture Burning Man, and since then I've seen tons of Burning Man photos, but the way you capture Burning Man makes you feel like you are either there or have been there. And I, I don't actually know how to describe the the inviting, realistic feeling you get. I don't even know how to describe it. Well, thank you again for saying that. I, um, I've been going to Burning Man the last seven years, and I'll just kind of take this conversation in a weird direction right away. And because I, I want to really provide helpful advice to other creatives, right? Because I think we're all in this together. And the greatest creative gift you can give to yourself is not to take yourself seriously at all. And in so doing that, you kind of begin to have this idea that it's not really you taking the photos. You're just kind of opening your heart to the universe and you're being there when something magical is happening. And if you look back in antiquity times, you know, great poets or uh, singers or lyricists or writers, uh, especially in the Greek tradition, they didn't actually feel like they created the work. They really felt like there was a muse and they were channeling that muse. And so, I think at Burning Man, it is a place that's helped me to be very meditative and experimental, and I really just go with the flow of the universe. And when I really open myself up to that, just magical stuff happens around me. And every now and then, I've got my camera with me, and I, and I try to capture it. So it's been a great place for me to help uh, realize this fundamental truth of being a creative. Uh, these three things you should do, you know, one, be alert, two, be astonished, and three is to share your astonishment with the world. And so these are sort of the fundamental philosophical tenets behind what I do. Be astonished. What a wonderful. That, that's the first time I've ever, ever heard anybody use that with photography. And it's, it's actually really meaningful to me. I gotta, so when you're at Burning Man and, and, and you're in the moment, as it were, 
Do you find that that experience of a Burning Man type environment and and meditative state that you get there, does that influence all of your work? Oh, I think so. Um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, my Burning Man experience every year is very important because it kind of fills me with enough creative juice to get me through the rest of the year because it reminds you of what life is like when you surround yourself with 60,000 um, artists and creatives and musicians and just sort of being in that milieu in this, if you're a sensitive person, I'm very empathetic and I'm into consciousness and all this kind of stuff, but it really does bleed into you to remind you of how life can be. And then you, you get back out into what they call the default world with all the muggles. Yeah, the real and world. And you're yeah. like, oh, okay, you know, it's, it's hard. It's, sometimes it's really hard to be a pure creative in a world that doesn't really, uh, you know, go with your flow. So it helps me to stay independent, helps to remind me uh, of, um, of what, it, what it really means to be a creative and uh, just to uh, have, uh, be very comfortable with your own sense of self-expression, not really worry about what other people think about you, you know, just so if really they love what you, that's you just great. described. If they don't, that's okay. What you just described yeah. is a battery recharge. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. It's kind of like a soul recharger. Yeah, I got to go sometime. It, it looks so interesting. So catching back up with you, you're, you're known as a travel photographer, and that's basically how you describe yourself, right? A travel photographer? That's right. I, I'm not really super into categorizations, um, but I guess if someone were to categorize me, it would be that. <laughs> okay. And, and you're known, obviously, for your HDR. In fact, you had, uh, at least from what I read, the first ever HDR image that was in the Smithsonian. Uh, fourth on Lake Austin. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And then you're also, you know, switching from the photography end, you're also a, a businessman involved in a lot of areas of photography. Uh, Peak Designs, you're involved with them with bag designs. Uh, Plotograph, which I had not heard of until Frederick just showed it to me, Frederick Van Johnson. And I am dying to play with Plotograph. That is one of the most interesting creative outlets I think I'm going to find in, in, in 2017. Um, and then also Mac Fun, and for Mac Fun, they've got a brand new version coming out 2018 of the Aurora HDR that you're involved with. That's right. We just announced that today, in fact, and uh, it's coming out for Mac and Windows, which I know a lot of people have been interested in. And uh, yeah, it's just been doing great. I think it has. We anonymously watch how people use the tool, and it's been used to make over a hundred million. HDR photos already and people really seem to love it a hundred million a hundred million yeah okay well, yeah and this is this is you used to be a photomatics guy I think but but you use pretty much exclusively now Aurora HDR oh yeah only Aurora I switched um, it's basically the same origin story as the bag with peak design in that I came back from a trip to Africa and I was like oh I hate my camera bag you know who designs these things it's, you know, maybe they were 80% good or 90% good, but there's a few things I, I wanted. So we called up our friends at Peak Design, who we, we had been promoted their previous Kickstarter. They had done the, the clip, the capture clip. Mm -hmm. And I heavily promoted because I loved it and sent them a lot of traffic, so they liked me. And I said, guys, I don't know anything about designing a bag. I said, I have a few ideas. I said, you guys are really smart. Let's make a bag together. So that was the origin of the bag. And basically the same thing with the HDR uh, software in that I was just getting sick of using Photomatics because 
I couldn't make the whole image look good. I could make part of the image look good, but then I had to go take it into layers and Photoshop and do all this cleanup work. And I was using three or four different tools. It's just slow and cumbersome. It's hard to teach people how to do all this stuff. And so I thought, I'm, I'm just gonna make my own. And then I thought, wait a minute, I don't know how to make software. My background is actually software engineering as computer science, but I'm a horrible programmer. So I was like, I'm gonna call those geniuses at Mac fun, and we're gonna make our own HDR software. So that's kind of the, the origin of that about three years ago. And now it's all I use. It is object, if, even if I wasn't involved with it, it is objectively the best and I would use it all the time anyway. See, and I, I live in a lot of the Mac Fun software tonality and stuff like that. I, I love their products. Their their history actually is kind of interesting on how they ended up at you know as Mac Fun. But um, so just so that everybody knows that's watching again, if you're if you're not really familiar with Trey, uh, he's a TEDx speaker. Great great TEDx stuff. Uh, Google, um, you've done stuff for Air New Zealand. You're a workshop leader. You have worldwide photo walks that are free. Uh, that you do all over the place. Um, so you're an educator and a lot of other things. You pretty much do everything, it seems like. <laughs> I, well, Do yeah, you sleep? Too much. Yeah, I wonder if you sleep sometimes. I don't, I don't sleep a lot, but I really enjoy, um, uh, I love the creative process and I like, I like sharing it with people. Um, I really do feel like um, it's important to help other people be creative. Uh, you know, it's not a fixed... Uh, some game, not a zero sum game. And uh, I think it makes all of us stronger to work together and create together. I think this is, uh, I think it's up to artists to help spread um, consciousness uh, around the earth and make everything better. Uh, you know, I'm not sure uh, governments can do it, but I think artists, I think artists can save the world and I'm just well, doing my own little part for it. And, and if you look at history, it's artists that quite often do uh, improve societies as, as a whole. So that kind of circles us into the shot that we're going to talk about today. Um, you mentioned a second ago that your background is computer science. And I'm kind of curious because I'm an old school network engineer myself. Um, I'm kind of curious from, from that artistic point of view, uh, the shot that I'm about to bring up and ju then just your photography in general, really. Um, does that does that technical background, right? That technical mindset that, that computer scientists have, which is somewhat unique to that field, does that influence how you see the world and how you photograph? I'm sure it does. Um, yeah, my degree is in computer science and math. And computer science, if you trace its origin, is actually a, a branch of philosophy. And it's understanding the way computers think. And so, and how operating systems work and this sort of thing. And so you just, I just kind of was steeped in this idea, the differences between the human mind and a computer mind. And it really helped me figure stuff out about my own mind and the way it worked and the way it interpreted the world. And basically, you know, your eyes and brain are just a parallel processing machine. You're pattern matching, pattern matching, pattern matching. And it was always interesting, like what patterns are interesting to me? Why is this one pattern or this, visual field more or less interesting than this other one. So I just became very sensitive to that, I think, over the years. Um, also, I was born blind in one eye. I still am, I only see out of my left eye. And so that kind of wired my brain up a little bit differently. But I think it's actually good to grow up different. You know, you don't want to grow up normal. You want to have weird stuff happen to you. So maybe good, maybe bad. Um, it wires you up differently. I think that's that's really important. And this has played a huge role in because I didn't get my first camera until I was 35. Uh, now I'm 45. And when I jumped into it, 
I, I took a photo of a sunset and I hated it. It was a horrible photo. I thought, how can the sunset be so pretty and the photo be so bad? It just made me angry. And so I immediately put on my comp sci hat and thought, well, this photo, digital photo, is just a ball of data. Maybe I can push and pull it in different directions. So I didn't know, like, t now it's okay to do this. Even 10 years ago, like, editing photos was not that good. Um, and especially sharing the way you would edit the photos. So I, I did everything the wrong way back then. I didn't have any grand plan for any of this. Uh, but it just seems to be the natural way to create, to try stuff, create, and share with other people. And it's interesting you, you bring up your eyesight because part of the way that you came up in the conversation I was having with Rick Salmon the first time was I, I used you as a reference and I said, you know, Trey Ratcliffe is one of those people who, who just has an eye for photography like nobody else. And he mentioned, you know, your, your eyesight. And, you know, I don't know why some people have that vision of the world that other people don't. I, I don't know if it's trainable, but I do believe in some people it's inherent. And as is referenced by the shot I'm pulling up right now, you are definitely one of those people that, that see the world um, in, in a way different from some others out there. So looking at this shot, the shot you call it where Jules Verne would perform experiments on animal kind. Right there, you had me. Um, tell me a little bit about this shot. I know it's in France. Yeah, this is uh, in Paris, and uh, hardly anyone knows about this place. It's beautiful, I think. I was just awestruck when I went in there. And it's a, it's a big, it's a museum about evolution, you know, if you believe in that kind of thing. And uh, I loved it. Um, I was just so taken with it. I found it mysterious. It was weird. It was confusing. And I think this is one of the counterintuitive things about photography and art is that you actually kind of want to confuse people and obscure information. When people look at a photo, they want to figure out like, what the heck is going on in this photo? I noticed this even just looking at my own Instagram feed. I know I follow a lot of photographers and Facebook. I just scroll through, scroll through. But the ones I stop on are the ones that I'm like, what's going on in this photo? Like I see a mistake or something not quite right. So I try to engineer mystery into a lot of my photos. In the same way I was confused the first time I went here and saw this view, I was like, whoa, this is like information overload, what's going on? There's animals, there's tech, there's lights, um, there's Color. patterns, uh, there's everything going on. How do, I, how do I capture it? It was a tremendous challenge. It, 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 you know, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at this thing right now. The, I'm, I'm curious as to whether part of this was your process or if it's the actual building, and I'm hoping to find out someday uh, soon. But the colors, the light, I see what you mean, by the way, about mystery. Because when, when you look at this picture uh, close up, actually, there's, there's areas of, you know, people that are totally in focus and areas of people in motion and blur, and, and there's an energy that kind of comes out of this photo. Was the lighting like this or is that a post? No, the, the lighting was like this. I very rarely, if ever, change the color of the lights in my photos. Um, the, the lighting was like this. The, the ceiling goes through this sort of rainbow LED thing. So it changes color every you know, few minutes. So I kind of waited for the colors to be something that I liked. And I also like all these animals around, like the giraffe on the right. I don't put stuff into my photos. Some people will, you know, paste in a, a giraffe or a moon or something. I don't do that. It's fine if they do. I, 
I don't do that though. And but it's also confusing. Like, is is that a real animal? Why why is this animal walking around a museum? Is it a museum about animal? What's going on? So, and this is um, this is quite a. Uh, I don't mean to say this in a important, self-important way at all, but this is a kind of very evolved photo because I had gone here probably five years earlier and taken a photo with my Nikon. 1424 lens kind of aimed down a single shot and it was pretty good it was okay I liked it but about five years later I thought my skills had improved and I knew this was such an interesting place that I wanted to come back and do it the right way so I came back and I zoomed in quite a bit and I, this is actually a panorama made of 250 different photos 250 shots yes so I kind of mapped out of coordinates, right, just kind of by eye, and I would take three brackets in each of these different areas. Um, it took a tremendous amount of processing time, you know, to get it all done, but this goes into our, we have these um, fine artworks, 21 of my favorite pieces, this is one of them, and they go to collectors, and they're printed out quite large, like nine feet across, 10 feet across, oh, wow. 10 by 10, they're printed Germany and they're expensive they sell uh, we only do three prints so there's only three of this one I think two of them have sold but they sell for seventy five thousand dollars seventy five thousand dollars and number three of three is ninety five thousand dollars so if these collectors are going to be paying so much money and putting it on a huge wall in their home or gallery or whatever I want to make sure that it looks amazing when you walk right up to it so that's why I kind of pick Pick my battles. I don't do. I don't work this hard on all my photos. Just some of them. But this one was a, a pleasure. I'm, I'm curious when you walked into this scene. So, so kind of take me back for a second, right? So you walk in for this second time to shoot it the you know right as as it were, and you decide you're going to do a panorama, but it's not a normal panorama. You're going to do a three exposure bracket for each position of that panorama. Um, now, obviously, the end result crop is somewhere i'm guessing around an eight by ten this room i'm guessing could have been cropped 17 ways from sunday um it could have been wide it could have, and, and each crop would have been a completely different energy that you would have gotten out of this shot so as you're standing there was this on a tripod or handheld this is on a tripod which by the way if you i do recommend people go here this is an illegal shot <laughs> i was supposed to take it uh you can apply ahead of time to get uh, permission. Uh, I didn't. Um, I don't always think that far ahead. So I was a bit panicked because I was trying to get this done, uh, you know, before security <laughs> got get <me>. you out. <laughs> yeah. So when you're taking this, what what is going through? I mean, are you composing in your head this vision? Do you pre-visualize this or do you figure I'm going to I'm going to capture what's in front of me and massage it later i mean how does that work in in your mind yeah I, I knew this i did have a final vision for this um but what i wanted to do is make sure that i captured a lot more than this right if i wish i had the pre-crop version of it but if you know how panoramas work they're just a mess there's stuff sticking out on the edge sometimes you miss a little bit of a quadrant um and i knew this time i also wanted those vertical lines to be vertical uh, the first time that I shot downward, I aimed down with that wide angle lens. Um, you know, all the, uh, it was 
it kind of made a V with all those vertical lines, which is okay. That doesn't really bother me. But I thought, well, I'll do it right. I want those to be vertical. And then I wanted the bottom of it not to be straight, but I wanted to open up like a boat because I remember I had this Noah's Ark feel to it. So I wanted it to look like a, a, a curvy boat opening up at the bottom along with vertical lines. So when I was capturing the shots, I just made sure I got plenty of uh, overlap, you know, because if you, if you have a big gap, that's a big problem. And I shot much more than this, just knowing that later I would go in and recrop it and uh, all that jazz. It's almost like a director shooting, you know, tons of extra footage so that when they get to the editing room, they know they've got the tools that they're going to need. Um, right. Yeah. I, I, um, and I don't use any, I know a lot of people use tools or like hardware to get a good panorama. I just kind of guess and I'm never, and I'm no genius at all, but I do a huge overlap. I do like 50% overlap of each of my shots. So I probably, when I say I took 250 shots, probably that was way overkill. I probably could have done it with like a hundred. Um, if I had used this hardware tools, but I, I don't mind the extra time. It was, it was still fun to work on. So here's a question that just popped into my head. So, okay, for sake of numbers, you've got 250 pictures, but again, it's a pano. So you have multiple positionings with three exposures per position. When you go to stitch this together, and I'm going to make up numbers here. So uh, do you take all the minus twos, stitch those into a panorama, all the zeros, stitch those into a panorama, all the plus twos, stitch them, and then HDR those three panos? Or do you take an HDR each position first and then stitch? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there, there are, those are the two ways to do it. Um, I prefer the first way, and I use this program called Auto Pano Giga, which has probably the worst user interface ever created by mankind. I think it's made by these German uh, just masochists. And every, even though I use it a lot, every time I go back into it, I got to reteach myself how to use it. I'm like, what does that button do? And so anyway, it, it's smart. It's really smart once you figure it out. Um, but you can just dump those 250 images into a folder. And then it will go through and go through and figure it all out. And then it will realize, hey, you've got brackets here, and it, it will generate three images for you. It's slow, but it will do it. So it, it creates a, a minus two panorama, a zero panorama, and a plus two panorama. And then I took all of those and put them into Aurora. So one other thing that I, I, I'm pretty sure I read it from you or heard it from you somewhere, and that was this concept of once you make a panorama, right? Once you, once you, or not a panorama, I'm sorry, an HDR. Once you take the, the multiple shots and you make your HDR to then take that final HDR and remix it with one of the original raw images. Is that sound right? Yes, that, that was a lot of the, uh, I get, again, this sounds like a self-important word. I don't think, but I don't know a better word. That's, that was a lot of the craftsmanship of it in that, Sometimes parts of it were just blurry or unusable, the final HDR image, because the panoramas didn't, didn't exactly match up, you know, so there's a little bit blurry here, or maybe like the giraffe looked like it had like four ears or something. So then what I would have to do is I'd have to go find that little sub segment, right? And um, 
than just HDR of that subsegment, those three photos where the giraffe's head is, okay? And then I would have to bring that in as a layer in Photoshop and then kind of put them together and then mask in the, the better giraffe's head. But I had to do that to about like 100 spots all over there because it just, it wasn't, it, the first HDR just wasn't that smooth. It's, it's the nature of merging multiple exposures. And, and based on the blurry people in, in some areas, I'm guessing this is pretty long exposure. Do you remember? Or? I don't remember. Yeah, it's pretty dark in there. So some of those must have been three or four second exposures. Okay, so that, that would explain a lot. And then that's also, yeah, from an HDR point of view, merging them, that's going to be tough. One of the things when I, when I showed this to my wife and told her how excited I was, <laughs> I get Dre Radcliffe on the show. Um, and she looked at this and she said, how on earth do you get colors like that in a photo? And as I'm browsing through your portfolio at Smug Mug, um, and it just goes on. I, I, I'm not kidding when I say I lost probably an hour, hour and a half scrolling through your portfolio at Smugbug because it keeps going, right? That's a, um, that's a long one. And as I'm scrolling through there, there is clearly a, a Trey Ratcliffe vision, right? A, a Trey Ratcliffe eye of, of composition and color that, that kind of runs through your photography. Is there something you do that people can learn from to get the pop of color that you get. But even though it's a pop of color, it's, it's realistic. It's not like it's oversaturated. It's just, it's this liveliness. What, I don't even know how to ask the question. That's what the worst part. <laughs> yeah, I think I know what you mean. And um, it's not really a deliberate style. I guess I can say two things. One, the more HDR you do, um, the more sensitive you become to light and saturation and then you also become and i learned this from from painting i don't paint much but i learned this from studying painting and impressionist is that you know if you have like let's say you have a green and it's close to a, a red or something i mean that's a good bad example a, a green color that's not oversaturated at all just like a normal green and you have it beside a blue Okay. Well, so, you know, your pupil just looks at the green okay, right away. So you're like, okay, I see the green. And then your pupil might jump over to the blue, right? You actually don't even have, when you look at a photo, you don't really have control over where your eyes go. Your brain takes over and your eye will move around. You can't see like later after you look at the photo for a while, then you can start to direct where your eye goes. But the first time you look at a scene or anything, you have no control. Your eye just goes crazy. It spazzes out. But what happens is after you go from the green to the blue is even before you go to the blue, you have the after image of the green inverted on your retina. You know, you know this, if you look at a bright color and you look at a white wall, you kind of see the opposite of that color, right? But what happens, of course, now you have the inverse of the green and now you're looking at the blue through this filter, right? You actually have this weird filter. It's not like, Oh, it's not like you have a, a palette cleanser between all your colors. And so you're always having these filters as you move around. So I become very sensitive to what colors go beside each other and what inverse colors mix well together. Um, so this, this, is, this is an aspect that I've become very sensitive to. The other one is that um, you don't want to oversaturate too many different colors on a photo. They did this one interesting study 
on uh, eye analysis, on pupil analysis, where pupils look at on photos or at anything. And immediately, the eye jumps to the most saturated thing on the photo. Not a surprise. If there's a red yeah. apple, it'll go right at the red apple. And then it will look at that, but your cones can only take that much heat for like a, a second, right? Like something like 900 milliseconds. And then your, your cone actually gets burnt out. And it, 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 this is the involuntary part of the eye movement. It will move off the red and it will seek something that is less saturated, like a gray or a black or a subtle, very subtle saturation. So you have to have a place for the pupil to go to easily. So it just moves easily off of the red spot. And then it will recharge in like half a second, 500 milliseconds, and then it will jump to another saturated spot. So this is a mistake I see with a lot of maybe new HDR photographers or people that use too much color, is that if there's nowhere for the eye to take a break, it will drift off the photo entirely and you've lost them. So you've got to have places for the eye to recharge in the photo. Oh, uh, okay. That is fascinating. And so really, it's almost like, it, you know, from a monitor point of view, like the monitor that's in front of me, you know, the, the old school burn-in that, that monitors used to get. It's almost like you're giving the eye a break from the burn-in so that it can start over. It's a reset. And you, yeah, you if you look consciously, at the photo, you'll see lots of gaps in there where you can t your eye can take a break, little islands of recharging. And when you're editing, you're, you're thinking of this. This is a conscious engineering into your images, as it were, that concept. Yeah, you'll see it. It doesn't happen in all my images, but I think a lot of my favorite ones, I definitely engineer a lot of desaturated parts in and um, a lot of black areas. Um, I think like some good heavy blacks help give other colors their vibration. And, and if you just use, if you just have a few parts that are like decent saturation, they just seem more saturated, um, you know, relative to what's around them. So From like you said, those are view, very yeah. bright and colorful, but they're not oversaturated. Yeah, it's almost like a balance. I, 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 what you're saying makes total sense to me. I've never heard it presented that way. Um, and that actually kind of answers the last question I was going to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway, in case there's another one that you've got. And that is, if somebody wanted to start doing, you know, somebody goes to, you know, treyratcliffe.com and looks at your fine art or go, goes to Stuck in Customs or something, they browse through your portfolio. And they think, I want to try this. And they go buy the brand new Aurora HDR 2018 that's coming out, available for Windows too. Um, and they want to try this. What, what is the one singular starting tip that you would give a new HDR experimental photographer to try and at least get them on the right foot, you know, to start yeah. with? Um, yeah. Because a, a lot of people, as you know, HDR is one of those things. I, I don't understand it personally. It's, you know, it's just another tool in the box, right? It's another tool in the, in, in the workbench. A lot of people don't like HDR. People love HDR done right. HDR is the most amazing thing. Um, it's like all tools, right? When they're used properly and with control by a pro. Um, but when people first start in it, they tend to overcook it sometimes. So, so what's your starting do this? Yeah. Hey, look, I overcooked it for years. Um, I didn't know because you don't, over time, you just kind of, not that you become more subtle, you just kind of figure out what works for you and what, what doesn't. 
Um, yeah, and if people want to come to my store on Second Customs and buy it, I would appreciate it. That'd be awesome. Thank you. And you can, if you don't like it, we'll give you all your money back for sure. So no, no risk. And also, one thing I should say too is that you don't have to have brackets to make an HDR photo. You can take single raws, any single raw you've shot your entire life, you can come breathe new life into it with, with Aurora. I, some of my, I would say at least 30 or 40% of my HDRs I produce now come from a single raw photo. So if you're, if you're new and coming in trying HDR for the first time and want to experiment, I guess the first philosophical thing is don't be scared, be like a kid, you know? <laughs> there's nothing, there's no risk. Just go in there and play with the controls. Um, I would suggest that um, if you are kind of intimidated by controls or a lot of these controls you might not have seen before, just click on the presets, okay? There's lots and lots of presets. I have my own extra presets you can get and click on them and start to decide what you like. Some will look good and make you happy and some won't, okay? And so when you see the difference, think like, what don't I like about that one? What do I like about that one? So you'll soon start to come up with your own sensibilities about what you find interesting. And then after that, you could take a next step and after you click on a preset, you know, it moves all the sliders around for you. So you can go look at the sliders and go like, oh, interesting, you know, in this case, like image radiance, which is kind of this glow effect that I like. Image radiance is way up. Smart colorize is way up. Like, oh, okay, so that's how that works. So it's a really good way to learn the tool is just to click on the presets. Yeah, oh, here's one other thing about the presets that most people don't know. When you go on a preset, you can click on it, it does the whole preset, but over each preset thumbnail, there's a slider, 100% slider. You can slide that down to 50%. If you, if you like the effect, but it's like too much, just slide it down to 50%. Yeah, and all the Mac fun stuff has that, um, which, yeah, which is so handy. It's, it's a cool thing like in Tonality too, actually, that you can, you can find this beautiful preset, but then customize it without really customizing it by just lowering its, you know, for lack of a better phrase, opacity. Um, right. Plus, uh, uh, Aurora has layers, um, which is something that I think a lot of people could play with and really, you know, if you're already a, a Photoshop guru and you want to move into doing HDRs in something like Aurora, uh, it's a great way to kind of express yourself and overlay lay different things. Um, you, you have been so generous with your time. I, I can't sure, no thank you no enough. If, if people want to find more about Trey Ratcliffe, um, what are the sites that you would say they should go to? Well, um, probably the main blog, stuckincustoms.com. I do a new photo there every day. I write a little story every day. I uh, got lots of tutorials. Actually, we have a new thing on there. Um, people like the weird way I talk and communicate. Not everyone does, but if you do, we've got this thing called the passport, Stuck in Customs Passport. And I think for uh, $10 a month, $9.99, bargain at twice the price. And you get, all, you get a ton of behind the scenes stuff. Um, I'm, I put out a bunch of videos, like a lot of how-tos around the world and see like crazy stuff that I get up to. It's not always, it's usually photography and art related, but not always. Um, and people really seem to enjoy that. We wanted, we, we have a good team here, about nine people that help me out. It's not just me alone, but we like we have a video production team. So now we're able to produce a lot more videos, like really high quality content. And uh, we're just always trying to do a, uh, you know, deliver really good stuff to the, to the people that want a unique experience there. Well, and, and on the blog post associated with this episode, thisweekinphoto.com, and just look for Behind the Shot, I'll have all the links so that you can follow Trey on social media, Twitter, Google+, 
uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram, his portfolio, all of that. Plus, I, I mentioned his large, or, and he mentioned his large format prints. Uh, I will have a link to those, his workshops, his photo walks. His, I've got so many links up there, including his store, um, that you'll be able to enjoy yourself for quite a while. And one thing I have to say is, because I've done this, go read the about page, because that in and of itself uh, is one of those things that seems to have just built over time and it's just got all kinds of really kind of cool information about you. I love the fact that you have your favorite movies up there. Um, I love the fact that you have, you know, the type of music that you like up there. Um, some really, and, and quotes from people that like your work and just trust me, go, go to the stuckincustoms.com and read the about page. Worth the entertainment factor alone. Trey, thank you so much for being here. Yes, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for all the good questions. Uh, well, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> the good guest, definitely. Again, to everybody, this is Behind the Shot, where we try and get inside the mind of uh, great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. Thanks again to my, my guest, Trey Ratcliffe. Always awesome to have him on. Hopefully, I'll get him on again because he's got a body of work we could examine forever. Hopefully, you picked up something new. If you like it, head on over to iTunes, drop a review. And of course, you can always subscribe in iTunes or the Google Play Store as well. That's it for this episode. We'll talk to you next time. Hey there, I'm Frederick Van Johnson. Thanks for checking out the TWIP Network on YouTube. If you'd like to keep up to date with the shows we're putting out, be sure to click subscribe. And while you're at it, give us a thumbs up. You can also subscribe on thisweekinphoto.com where you'll find lots of other great photography shows. Thanks for watching the TWIP Network on YouTube.